Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church. We remember who we are, whose we are, and why we're here. And in that trial, and through that trial, we find joy as Christ's followers. He often does things in a way that we could not imagine, so that we can find joy even in the ruins of a crisis. He enables us to see things as they really are, and it changes our world, it changes our perspective, it changes our priorities, and yes, it changes our lives forever. I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every giant will fall The mountains will move Every chain of the past You've broken into All the fear of the lies We're singing the truth That nothing is impossible With you Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Grace to Live radio broadcast with Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the broadcast. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's program, we'll be hearing a message from the sermon series that Pastor Keith has entitled, Cultivating Joy from the Ruins. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study. Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. That is a common greeting that Christians have used for nearly 2,000 years to remind them of what they believe and in whom they've trusted and to remind them their cause for joy in this momentary life that we live here on earth, on this fallen planet. Today's message is appropriately, I believe, called Finding Joy in the Resurrection. It's subtitled Knowing Your Place in This Universe and in This Life. And our passage today is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 53. Let me read something to you. The joy of the resurrection is found through the scriptures. It is experienced and expressed in worship. Worship is everything we think, say, and do in this momentary life on earth. Scripture is essential because Scripture enables us to perceive things as they really are and as they were always meant to be and not how they might appear in a moment in time. Worship in all of its forms enables you and I to express this joy as well as point others to the cause, to the source of this joy, Jesus Christ. That said, let's turn our hearts and our minds toward finding joy in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does all of this relate to our present trial, our present crisis, the COVID-19 crisis? Well, the Bible tells us this in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge and understanding of the truth. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say that God's will for you is to understand who you are and why you're here and to find joy in your purpose through Christ Jesus. Jesus said himself during his earthly public ministry that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Well, right now, the truth is, the entire globe, think about it, the entire globe, six of seven continents are sheltering indoors, pretty much. Everything has shut down. 150 plus nations, their economies have kind of screeched to a halt. And everything that we once knew, everything that we once took for granted, seems to be gone at the moment. God often sends us a trial like this to bring us to a point where we look to him, where we trust to him, where we remember who we are, whose we are, and why we're here. And in that trial, and through that trial, we find joy as Christ's followers. He often does things in a way that we could not imagine, so that we can find joy even in the ruins of a crisis. He enables us to see things as they really are, and it changes our world, it changes our perspective, it changes our priorities, and yes, it changes our lives forever. You know, there's nothing like a crisis to reorder a person's priorities. Crises tend to change our perspective, to change our lives, to change our vision of the world around us. One moment people think they know their place on this earth, in this universe, in the city in which they live, in the community that surrounds them, and suddenly everything changes just like that. Careers end, dreams are brought to a close, plans are irrevocably changed, and one's world is turned upside down. That's what a crisis does. And yet sometimes, sometimes your perspective changes through a crisis for the better. Crises have a way of clearing the decks of clutter in our lives, of clearing up the field of vision, of of eliminating distractions from our lives. And sometimes in the midst of the worst type of crisis, the crisis ends up being the greatest gift that you could have imagined. Why? Because you begin to see things as they really are. What's important becomes abundantly clear. The trivial and the less important things become to you just what they are, trivial and less important. And as we talked about a moment ago, today is Resurrection Sunday. Some call it Easter Sunday. And in it, we'll see, as the events of Easter play out in the text which we're studying today, that this is a case study for finding joy in the most difficult of circumstances or situations. And and let me just point out, it all starts with the scriptures. It's all tied up in the scriptures. I don't want you to miss that point. Let me set up the context for the passage we're going to study today. The events are taking place in the shadow of the crucifixion with the dawning of the resurrection. People thought they knew their place in the world. They thought they had found their Messiah. And we begin with two men. We end up with several people who were apparently were looking to Jesus as the Messiah, but not quite getting what that meant. And bang, all of their ideas, all of their preferences, all of their aspirations seemed to be dashed with the crucifixion. They were now fogged in by confusion, fear, agony, and rudderlessness. And what we have here are, is two men now walking on the road to Emmaus, walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk, and it would take a couple of hours in the hot Palestinian sun. And we begin with Luke twenty-four thirteen. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That very day. What day? The day of the resurrection. You see, we join them in the midst of things. 
This is the day where the woman found the empty tomb. This is the day where the women encountered angels who told them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. They walk in to prepare Jesus' body for burial, and he's not there. And they meet these angels. And we pick up in Luke 24, 6 through 9 for a little bit of context. The angels ask them, why do you look for the living among the dead? And then they say this, he is not here. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. So the ladies run and they tell these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They told these things to the eleven and all the rest. The eleven were Jesus' closest companions and confidants and all the rest were the retinue of the people that surrounded them. Lesser known figures in in Jesus' earthly public ministry. And we see in our passage today, that very day, two of them, two of the rest are on this road to Emmaus, trying to make sense of what's going on. And they're walking and talking and talking about everything that didn't make sense to them. If he was the Messiah, how could he be arrested, crucified, killed, dead and buried? What does this mean? And that brings us back to our passage in Luke 24, this time verses 14 through 16. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, the New King James Version says reasoning, reasoning together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Let me explain to you what's going on. Here they are walking along, walking in the aftermath of the crucifixion the dawn of the resurrection, after the Passover, like many religious pilgrims leaving Jerusalem and going home, they're going to Emmaus. And they're just trying to figure out what in the world is going on because they thought they had it all figured out. They thought they'd found their place in the universe, their place in the kingdom of God, serving alongside this Messiah. And then their world is turned upside down. Meanwhile, coming up from behind them is Jesus. And he joins in their conversation. He joins them in their walk to Emmaus. Now, I know that sounds odd because if you and I were walking down the street and somebody just walked up and kind of butted in, we might think it was offensive. But in those days, according to the practices of the culture, even hospitality, good manners, if religious pilgrims were going in the same direction, they would band together for safety in numbers because the roads weren't as safe. And so one religious Jew joining two other religious Jews would not be surprising. And him joining in the conversation as one of their, as one of their companions would not be an offense at all. And so he just sort of joins in. And we see that they did not recognize him, that they were kept from seeing him. And there's a lot of mystery in some people's minds about that. Well, how could that be? Why, Why didn't they recognize him? Was there something magical or supernatural going on? Well, there's a number of possibilities. One is the last time they saw Jesus, he was on the cross. He was beaten to a pulp, covered in blood and dead. And now this individual joins them And they're so preoccupied with their situation, they don't recognize him because he's not bleeding. He's not all torn up. He's in a resurrection body. The other thing is this. When you run into people in places you don't expect to see them, you often don't recognize them. Years ago, I flew from the church where I was the pastor to a men's conference outside of Detroit, Michigan. And I ran into people from my own church at the Detroit airport. And I didn't recognize them because I was used to seeing them in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And here they were in a place I wasn't programmed to see them. I didn't recognize them until they spoke to me. 
That could be what's going on here. Another thing is similar to that. One of my hobbies, one of my little joys in life is to run into you guys at Costco. And because you're used to seeing me behind a pulpit or seeing me at church and office or during the worship service, when you see me out buying groceries, a loaf of bread or a gallon of milk, you don't recognize me because you don't expect to see me. It could be any one of those reasons. But what we do know is this. The text says they didn't recognize him. They were kept from seeing him, from recognizing him. Verse 17, let's continue. And he said to them, so he's walked up and he's joined them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad, understandably. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be crucified, to be condemned to death, and crucified him. Now, what's going on here? They've got all the facts right, pretty much. Their interpretations are a little bit off, but they've, they've understood the facts. So Jesus walks up, and he's, he engages them. He's trying to get them to think. We're going to see him make them think through their understanding of God and God's word and their place in God's kingdom as he talks to them. So they're walking along, they're reasoning, they're wrestling with this. They now see Jesus as more of a prophet, maybe not the Messiah because he's dead. They've got their facts right. The leaders did crucify him. They subverted Roman justice and they crucified him through the hands of godless men. But they have misinterpreted just what went on. This is not a train wreck. This is not an accident. This is not the world spinning out of control. It's much, much more. Let's look at verses 21 to 23. Notice what they say, particularly at the beginning of verse 23. But we had hoped, our desire was, our preference was, our understanding was, our interpretation of the Messiah, but we had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us, this is, again, they're part of this larger retinue and the 11 disciples that are gathered together. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So they're relating the facts and they're saying what they had hoped. They they had hoped he was the Messiah. And and they're talking, you, you can just see that their whole world is turned upside down. They've lost their equilibrium. They've lost their way. They thought they had found their place in the universe and that this Jesus was going to be both a spiritual Messiah and a political leader who would throw off the Roman yoke from Israel, who would, who would chase the oppressors away. They'd been riding this wave, they thought, to the redemption of Israel, to the reestablishment of the glory of the Davidic kingdom. And now in their mind, this wave had crashed on the rocks of reality. And they were losing hope in his Messiahship. And they, they were even losing hope in, in God's involvement. They were looking for some sort of divine intervention. But now three days have passed and nothing. He's still dead. 
And they're trying to piece it all together. The angels, the empty tomb, what the women said. And then no body, no Jesus. Now here's the odd thing about this. Good Jews, good religious Jews shouldn't have been confused at all. We often talk about Isaiah 53 and the suffering of the Messiah. But Isaiah chapter 49 to Isaiah chapter 55 explains it all in great detail. Daniel, Daniel 9, 16, talks about Messiah being cut off, killed. And so, as good Jews, as religious Jews, you know, they would have probably memorized most of the Torah by the time they were 10. They would be on the way to memorizing the uh, prophets and the writings so that when they bar mitzvah at 12, they could be questioned on the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. That's what all Jewish kids did in those days, rich and poor. But they're not getting it. They remember everything, but it's like they've learned nothing. Jesus now speaks up, and he speaks into the situation, and he confronts them lovingly. You have this loving, gentle, but yet clear-cut rebuke. Verse 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Ouch. Let's read that again. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do not miss this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus kind of jolts him and says, you should know better. What are you thinking? And he, he says, it's all laid out in the scriptures. And he takes them back to square one in Genesis all the way through the prophets. You know, the prophet Isaiah, who God spoke through saying, I declare the end from the beginning. It had all been laid out. The promises of God, the coming of the Messiah, who he was, what he would do. And so Jesus confronts them with this. He's trying to get them to think. He's trying to get them to interpret their surroundings, their experiences, this present crisis, their purpose through the lens of Scripture. And one of the things I appreciate about our loving Savior is his kindness and gentleness because he could have punctuated all that saying, and furthermore, here I am. But you know what? If they were like me, that would have just blown their minds. What we see instead is that Jesus doesn't want to overwhelm them with some great dramatic reveal. He's letting what he's taught them, what he's said to them, what he's shown them from the scriptures sink in. And things begin to click. Things begin to click. Verses 28 and 29. So they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Here's why I'm, I read this passage and didn't leapfrog over it. Because many people look at this passage here and say, well, why did he deceive them? He acted like he was still going. He acted like he wasn't going to stay with them. That, what, what, what was that all about? It's all about the culture, the protocols of the society. Jewish hospitality has very specific ideas about taking care of one another, loving your neighbor as you love yourself, and you are never to impose on anybody. It's kind of like today, a bunch of people go out to buy, somebody invites somebody to lunch, 
And he says, I got the check. But then the other person reaches for the check anyway because he doesn't want to impose. And so in Jewish culture, you don't ask to stay with somebody. You, you prepare and act as if you're going on and they extend the invitation. You give them a chance to show hospitality. That's what's going on here. The Jewish hospitality protocols are observed, respected, and practiced. Now watch what happens in verse, verses 30 and 31. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and he gave it to them. Verse 31, and their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. There's the big reveal. Everybody's kind of wound down. They're kind of calming down and he's going to reveal himself to them in a way that would be clear to them. Jesus had a way, whether it was feeding the 5,000 or feeding the 4,000 or breaking bread, he had a special blessing he did. He did it in a way that was apparently unique to him, and he does it here, and they recognize him, and then he miraculously vanishes. What you have here is a miracle that authenticates that the teaching they just heard about God's plans for the Messiah and mission are true and that the messenger who delivered that message, who taught that, can be trusted. Miracles always authenticate teaching in the Bible. And so, here he is, he reveals himself, they're stunned, and then he disappears, and they are like, we got it. Where do you see that? You see that in verse 32. Look what happens here. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. Here the scriptures are again and their importance. You can sense their excitement. Joy is rising up from within them. They are rejoicing in the ruins of the world that they thought they knew. Joy is emerging within the apparent trial, within the crisis of faith, as things begin to click and as they begin to see things as they really are. Through the scriptures and with the punctuation point, the exclamation point of Jesus' reveal and miraculous disappearance. You just can't help but notice what they say. Did our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did our hearts not burn within us while he opened up the scriptures? The scriptures were mentioned to help them connect the dots, to help them see things as they really are, that God is at work here. God is not absent. No, not at all. God's sovereignly bringing about his predetermined plan in the life of the Messiah and their lives and in the life of the whole world. You know, we find a reference to this elsewhere. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching at Pentecost to the same mob who had 40 days earlier said away with him. He's preaching a sermon that will lead to the salvation of thousands of people. But I want you to look at what he says here in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, because it helps you understand there's no chance here. Everything's going according to plan. And in Acts 2, 22, we read this. Men of Israel, that's Peter talking, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death 
since it was not since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. As Acts 2 indicates, and as these two men learn on the way to Emmaus, God is at work in all things, causing all things to work together for good. Pastor Keith Crosby with today's Grace to Live radio broadcast. We are so grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with us today here on the program. And if you have questions about today's show, or if you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Keith, then I would encourage you to visit our website, hillsidechurch.org. There you can listen to past sermons and other content from Pastor Keith just by clicking the Sermon Archive tab. And you can also find links to Pastor Keith's blog, as well as the Out of My Mind podcast. The website is also a great place to connect with us here at Hillside. You can find information on our service times, ministry opportunities, and of course you can browse our calendar of upcoming events. Again, all this and much, much more can be found by visiting our website, hillsidechurch.org. Well, we hope that you'll join us again next time on Grace to Live. But until then, I'm your host, Kevin Reeves, and on behalf of Pastor Keith and everyone here at Hillside Church, it is our prayer that the Lord will richly bless you, and thanks for listening. Thank you.